Today we're going to do, we're going to look at the story of Ruth. Um, Ruth is in the Old Testament. You probably have heard of her. Um, So let's find her. She's early on. She is after, so it goes the first five, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, whatever, whatever, Deuteronomy, Judges, and she's right after Judges. So she's only a few books in. The story of Ruth actually takes place during the time of the Judges, and if you remember, the Judges are the group that led the Israelites before there were kings. Um, If you remember, way, way back in the fall, I taught about um, Hannah, and her story actually immediately follows this story. So we're in that time period, way, way long time ago. Um, during the time of the judges. Um, so we're going to start off, we are actually going to attempt to do a quick overview of this whole book. It's only four chapters, and it's just jam-packed with good stuff. It's a really beautiful story um, that is historical. You know, like we see Ruth in the genealogies, that this they're real people, but it's just a really beautiful story that you can see where every word is intentional. And there's just no way we can do all of that. So we're just going to highlight over the top of it. And um, I think you're going to like it if you're not familiar with Ruth. Um, So to begin, if you're in Ruth, we're going to start with meeting um, her family. Um, So I'm just going to read the, we're going to just read little pieces of this along the way. Starting in the beginning, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So let's um, make sense of that, right? <laughs> so to start with... I don't need that. We've got Elimelech and Naomi. They're the happy couple. They have two sons. On your sheet, you can add in um, to this little family chart. So they have two sons. Malon. I'm totally guessing on how to pronounce their name, so if you know better, I'm sorry. And Killian. So this is their family, and they are Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And I just, how's that for a tongue twister? Elimelech and Naomi from Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, which sounds ridiculous, I think. But maybe you can, we would say maybe something similar. Steve and I are godsends from Rock Island in Illinois. So, like, we would have as many descriptors. Theirs are just crazy names. Um, so they're living during the time of the judges. This is their family. They live in Bethlehem, but they move to Moab because there's a famine. There's not enough food in Bethlehem, so they move to Moab where there's more food. While they're there, um, Elimelech dies, and so Naomi's left with her two sons. Um, the sons get married to Moab women, and that's where Ruth is. Ruth goes with Malan. And Orpah is the other wife for Killian. <clears throat> it's kind of a big deal that they marry Moab women. Did you get it? It's O-R-P-A-H, Orpah. I think some people say that Oprah's name comes from this, if you care. <laughs> but Orpah 
and Ruth. They're just side comment. Okay, so it's kind of a big deal, though, that they would marry women from Moab. Um, Deuteronomy 23.3 says, No Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. So these people, they are not Israelites, and they're... It's not totally like illegal for them to be with them, but it's not great either, for sure. Um, but so they married the Moab women, and then about ten years later, the men died. Malan dies, and Killian dies. And over the course of those ten years, nobody had any children. So what we're left with is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And nobody else. So three widows, no sons. That's bad. And that's where we're going to just sit for a minute. The first part we're going to talk about is the theme of emptiness that is in this story. Um, It really begins, their emptiness begins when they leave Bethlehem. Um, Just an interesting point is that Bethlehem actually means a house of food or the place of bread. And so the emptiness for this family begins that Bethlehem, their home, the house of bread, is empty. So they have to leave. Um, And that's just the beginning of their emptiness. And they enter a season of emptiness. Actually, remember, the deaths of the men in this family took ten years. So it was really a season of ten years of emptiness. Um, and we all know, like, how's that for a season, huh? That would, that would be painful. Um, so just to, like, consider the loss that Naomi has experienced during this time. Um, if we look at chapter 1, verse 5, it just says, Both Malan and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And then if you skip over to chapter 1, verse 21, she describes her state. She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. I just, this piece, right, I resonate with it, and I bet you do too, of feeling emptiness, and that the Lord strips away things from us, and that that's exactly what Naomi's experienced. And we see it happens over and over again during history, and even, I know, in many of our lives, too, we experience stripping away of things, and God seemingly emptying us of what appears to be good things. And I think some of it is he actually is the one removing them, and sometimes he's just allowing loss in our lives. But it begs the question, why does he do this? Why does he allow emptiness and pain? Um, And even Naomi says, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. That she's in pain. This has not been pleasant. Um, So I want to start there. Um, Your question number one, why do you think God allows lives to become empty? And I know just because a lot of you have experienced it, I suspect if you're anything like me and you're going, God, why are you doing this? God, why are you doing this? And I bet you speculate why God does things like this or allows things like this. Um, So at your table, I want you to just take a few minutes and come up with um, two or three reasons why you think God allows emptying in our lives. Okay, so go ahead. Okay, so back we're going to look... Right where we left off in chapter 1 at verse 6. 
It says, when, when she, meaning Naomi, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Um, so she's going back to Bethlehem. There's food again. And remember, this has been at least ten years. And so finally we're hearing there's food again. And so she decides she's in a a desperate place, probably, and a painful place, that this is not good, that she has, that it's three widows with no children, that this is a really, um, like a poverty kind of place for them. They can't own anything, they can't work, they they have nobody to take care of them. this, This is bad. So there's a little bit of hope that there's food in Bethlehem, so she's packing up and going home. And so she packs up the girls and heads for home, but along the way, it kind of occurs to her, like, wait a minute, maybe these girls shouldn't be coming with me. Maybe they'd be better off staying in Moab, going back to their parents, and starting a new life. Um, maybe they could get married again. Like, there's hope for them. They should go home. Um, and so she, um, the next part of chapter one is she's convincing the girls, go home. Don't come with me. This is no place for you. You can do better. Um, Eventually, she convinces Orpah, and Orpah heads back to Moab. So now we're left with just Naomi. Um, Ruth won't go. She will hear nothing of this, and she decides to stick with Naomi and go to Bethlehem. Um, this happens in one chapter 1, verse 15. You might be familiar with this part of the story. Um, verse 15, Naomi says, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. And this is her commitment to stay with Naomi, and I think really ultimately she's committing to God at this point too, um, and committing to be with the people of um, our God, the God of the Israelites. Um, and I, it just this just reminded me, like I can relate with her too. That I felt very similar when I was young, and my mom knew the Lord. Um, she got saved when I was like in I don't know, maybe fifth grade or so. And I remember just being drawn to it. And she let me go with her to prayer meetings, and I just wanted to be with these women who were praying. And I very much remember. I don't know what they have, but I want it. And I was drawn to them. And I just think, this don't you think that's how Ruth feels too? Like maybe she doesn't even get it, but she knows she loves Naomi. She knows that this is worth it, and she trusts her, and she wants what Naomi has. And that she is going, no matter the sacrifice, that her going to Bethlehem is not any better because now she's a foreigner and not in a great place. Like they're not going to think too highly of her there. So it's potentially will be worse for her in Bethlehem. But she is committed. She wants what Naomi has and she goes. Um, So I just to like consider also the emptiness in this picture that they're empty in Moab and for Ruth ultimately she there's the potential for more emptiness by going um, 
And I think this, I just resonate with this, don't you? The feeling of emptiness. And um, the emptiness even before we know the Lord. That was a very specific memory, like feeling I had before I knew the Lord. The thing that made me seek after the Lord was an empty feeling of like, and we keep talking about that, like I got to fill up with something and we try things. And I felt very empty. And um, I just believe that the Lord allows that to bring us back to Him. That emptiness ultimately leads us to God. And that when we're in a position where we feel we have nothing else to lose, which maybe is how Ruth is feeling, she's got nothing left to lose, um, that it's often just the beginning. Um, kind of lost my place here, but that's okay. Look at how this goes. So we've got the beginning. The beginning of the story is emptiness. But then look at verse 22, how this chapter ends. It says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem at the barley harvest, as the barley harvest was beginning. And that the emptiness was really just the beginning of what God was doing. And that—that that, that is the story that we know of God, is that... that Everywhere else, emptiness is the end of the road. And emptiness is where we go, I give up. It's over for me. And it's hopeless. But when we're seeking God, like Naomi and Ruth, they're going where they see God active. They see God providing an active Bethlehem. They choose to go there. And when we follow God, emptiness is often just the beginning of the story. And I wonder if that is true for you. If you can recognize in your own life where emptiness was only the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. Um, can you describe a time... When that was true. And I wonder, what was that emptiness like for you? Um, What were you looking for during that time? And can you look back now and say, how did God use it actually as a beginning? So I wonder if at your table, there's a couple of you who resonate with this emptiness being the beginning. And if you can share that. Go ahead. So this part that we're going to zero in on here is um, a theme of their reputations in this chapter. Um, Did you notice in verse 11, well, I guess really in verse 10, that Ruth says, why have you found such faith in your eyes that you took notice of Why? How did you even notice me? And he says, I've been told all about what you've done. And that jumped off the page at me this time when I read it. Uh, It's her reputation. And... Maybe even just if you started, what's your reputation? <laughs> but her reputation is everybody knows all about her. And so we're going to just pull out the things that is um, that describe her reputation. The first thing being that she's from Moab, a Moabitess. They say that right away in verse 5 and 6 that Boaz asked, who, who does this woman belong to? Well, she's the Moabitess who came with um, Naomi. Um, and remember, that wasn't that wasn't like a great thing, that people were not going, oh, she's from Moab. Like, I can't wait to meet her. That's great. They were going, oh, she's from Moab. Like, this was not necessarily great, and it would maybe even like raise suspicion about her. Um so that was their her initial descriptors. She's from Moab. The next thing I think that we see from her, though, right away, they say in verse 7, she said, let me come and follow the harvesters. And this, 
what she was doing, gleaning behind the harvesters, that was what a widow would do. That's how you would get food, is that you would follow the harvesters and pick up the leftovers. And God set that up in his law, that um, the harvesters weren't allowed to get every last piece. They had to leave some behind, and it was so that these women wouldn't starve. Um, So that's what she's doing. This is a normal process of getting food in this time. Um, But they say that she... She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest. So we see she's a hard worker, and that she's impressed them. Um, The next thing, number three, is that she's kind to Naomi. That's a fill-in for you, that she's kind. Um, That they've taken notice of that. That's that's exactly what Boaz tells her, what he's taken notice of in verse 11. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. He recognizes that she has left everything to take care of her mother-in-law, who otherwise has nothing. Um, I mean, I think she's following Naomi for more reasons than just to be kind, because I see her attracted to God. But what they're seeing, and it's certainly not untrue, she's being very kind and giving up a lot of her life to take care of Naomi. Um... The next thing that we see, it's actually in chapter 3. If you just skim over to chapter 3, verse 11, her reputation is mentioned again. Um, This is Boaz talking in verse 11. He says, Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do what you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. How's that for a reputation? Everybody knows and says she's a woman of noble character. I think that's a wonderful reputation. Um... That's noble, just means virtuous and good and honorable and upright. That she's really a wonderful person who's doing things the right way. Um, I think we see that in how she's gleaning in the fields. That she's following the Israelite customs in getting food. I'm sure she could come up with other ways that would be less noble. Um, But she is willing to absorb herself into the Israelite community. Remember what she says, your people will be my people. She's following their customs and becoming one of them and doing things the right way, and they've all taken notice. Um, and so, but why, is, why does it really even matter what her reputation is? And it matters because it caught the attention of everybody. Um, and in turn, she receives respect for it. Um, if you look at Proverbs eleven sixteen. It says, a kind-hearted woman gains respect. And that's exactly what we see here. She is a kind woman. Over and over again through the story of Ruth, it is kindness is talked about that she is a kind woman. That's her number one attribute. And a kind-hearted woman gains respect. And that's exactly what happened. Boaz takes notice and gives her even more than is required by the law. Um, And even that she says, why have I found favor? Because of your reputation as a kind-hearted woman. Um, So how about you? What's your reputation? What do you think people see in your life? Because it matters. Um, What are the effects of your reputation? Do you know? What do people think about you? And do you see the effects of your reputation? Um, Maybe even you don't know what your reputation is, but you certainly know the effects of your life. And maybe that's a better starting point for some of you. But let's take a few minutes around your table and talk about reputation. If you have a really hard time looking at yourself, maybe think about somebody that you admire and what's their reputation. Maybe it's easier to 
take the person next to you and say what their reputation is. But let's talk about reputation around your table for a minute. Go ahead. The next thing we want to look at is Boaz's reputation. Um, I know we were looking at Ruth, but you can't look at Ruth without looking at Boaz because turns out I think he's the star of this show. Um, so we're going to look at Boaz's reputation. Um, the first thing we see about Boaz is that he is clearly a godly man. We see that from the very beginning when he came into his fields and he greeted them, the Lord bless you, but he is a godly man, and that's just the beginning. Throughout, we see him um, just reflecting God throughout the story. Um, so for sure, he's a godly man. The second thing that Boaz is, is this villain, is he, is, he too is kind. Um, he's so kind. He takes notice of the oppressed. Uh, Ruth has nothing. He knows she comes with Naomi. Naomi has nothing. And he has a heart for them. Um, he certainly notices and is gracious to them. Just look at these proverbs then about kindness. Um, when I did this, I just looked in the concordance in the back of my Bible, looked up kind, and what else it said about kind. And this is what all comes up. Um, Proverbs 14.21, maybe get your pen ready. Blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Proverbs 14.31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19.17, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he's done. So throughout Proverbs, this is only some of them. There's more, and they all say the same thing. Um, is kindness is always talked about in terms of the oppressed and the poor and the needy. Um, this ultimately is the heart of God. And so then when I think about in Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit, and one of the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, um, I'm convicted. How about you? Like, I'm maybe not as kind as I think I am. Um, I think I'm generally kind to people, but when it is put in terms of noticing the oppressed and noticing the needy and going out of my way to be gracious and helpful to them, I don't know, right? That's convicting. Um, but if you're not convicted yet, wait, there's more. <laughs> He's, that, he doesn't stop there of taking notice of the oppressed. Number three, he's also very generous. Um, he goes beyond what is required. He could have been kind, just giving, doing the requirement, but he actually was kind and generous, going above the law, what was required of him. Um, in chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, we, um, we actually see him, that part we just read, he's kind of giving her a job by saying, stay in my fields, don't go anywhere else, follow my men, stay with the servant girls, stay in my land for the season of harvest. Um, and um, that he even then goes beyond and gives her security in um, on his field. Then instructs the men not to touch her. That later on we hear, like, this is actually a dangerous place. And if she went to another field, she could be hurt. And that he's physically protecting her. He, um, in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, he gives the men further instructions on not to embarrass her. To help her do the custom the right way and make sure she gets enough. And... 
Then he brings her into meal time where she didn't have to be, I gather. She could have been left outside because she's stunned that he is including her like into like his friend area is what it sounds like to me. That he's bringing her in and giving her more food, more to drink, making sure that all of her needs are met. Um, and he's giving her just guaranteed provision and giving Naomi guaranteed provision during this season. So it's just like he's really a great man, right? Just kind and generous. And really, that would be enough, right? And we would be all impressed with him. Um, But I think it's even one more step he does. Like he goes even further. And that is he gives God glory. Number four in here, he gives God the credit for it. Um, Look look again at verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. So she has just asked, how did you even notice me? Like, why do you care about me? He says, because I've heard about you. I know what you've done. And verse 12 says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He's really praying for her at this point, right? That's a prayer that he prays for her, like on her, with her there. And, um... We know his generosity is God-induced, that God has given him a heart for the oppressed, that these characteristics, kind and generous, they're God's heart, and we are just seeing Boaz reflecting them. Um, And he knows it, and is pointing out, I think, in this prayer that he could have taken the credit for it and be like, you're welcome, I'm so glad I could help you and take care of you, you poor thing. But he doesn't. He turns all the glory to God and acknowledges that God is the one who's actually providing for her. That he's just, we say, the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what he's doing and making sure that God's getting credit for it. Um, She's blessed, not because of Boaz, but because God is blessing her through Boaz. Um, And that the generosity she's experiencing is actually the generous love of God. And he's pointing that out. Um... She certainly doesn't feel worthy. She says that. And she's not. She's a foreigner who's got nothing. She's a really low girl on the totem pole. But he's, by taking care of her, he's expressing God's love to her, and she's feeling it. Um, Let's see. Um, So... We can see Boaz has a wonderful reputation. And again, but what's the point of a good reputation? And it's not that we're the ones who are receiving blessing for it. Um, It's for a greater purpose. And it's that we would reflect it back to God. That God would get the glory. And we actually see this happen, which I think is really awesome here. So after this awesome day, we're like, Ruth has been set up. She's been given a job. She's been given security. Like, things are looking pretty good for them all of a sudden. After ten years of loss, things are looking hopeful again. Um, So Ruth goes home and tells Naomi everything. Brings her, like, a big old barrel of food and tells her what happened today. Um... So let's just flip over to that conversation between Ruth and Naomi. That's in chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, Verse 19 says, Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. 
And this is just awesome, um, I think. At first glance, right, it looks like Naomi is saying, the Lord bless him, Boaz. He, Boaz, is not stature and kindness. But that's not, other translations and other commentators really think that that he there is she's not referring to God. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And doesn't that make more sense, too? That God has not stopped showing kindness to us. She's feeling hope and feeling God's love for her. Um, flip over, keep your finger in Ruth, and flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Towards the end. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus is talking. This is um, the Beatitudes, that long sermon he's giving. And chapter 5, verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and what? Praise your Father in heaven. And that's what we see happening. Naomi and Ruth experience Boaz's good works, and who do they praise? God. He has not stopped showing kindness to us. And that's exactly what Jesus says. That's the whole point of our good works, is that people would praise God, not us. Um, so ultimately, what's the point of being kind or generous, or really anything? Loving, forgiving, merciful, nice, anything. What's the point of being all these things? And it's that they, the receiver, would not praise you, but would be impressed so much, would be like overwhelmed with like, you went beyond what was humanly possible, it had to have been God at work here. And that ultimately they would turn and praise God instead of you. And that's exactly what happened. Naomi and Ruth are overwhelmed by his kindness and generosity that is so beyond the normal standard God is at work here. And I think we want to say our actions speak louder than words, right? And let your life be a witness. You don't have to say anything. Just let your life be a witness. And I just don't think that that works very well. And that when we leave it to our actions, people just think we're good people. That there are plenty of good people in this world who go above and beyond. I think Jesus set a standard a long time ago that the world has just picked up on and has raised the bars like humankind. We're better people now because of his example. So people just assume you're next and you're generous. Um, and that if we leave it at that, I think we will get the praise. And I think we need to be like Boaz. We need to look for the opportunity to point it to God. That's what he did when he prayed for her. And he didn't just go home and pray for her. He spoke the blessing right over her and put in her head, you come under the wings of God, let him bless you. So that when she sees the blessing, she can think, God's the one blessing me. Um, so I just want, is this true for your life? Is any? Are you like Boaz ever? Can you recall a time in your life when your generosity or your kindness or any fruit of the Spirit resulted in someone praising God instead of you? I just have found this really convicting lately. It's like, am I just doing what a normal person can do, or am I infused by the power of God? And it is so great that it had to be God at work, and that people don't go, oh, me, that's so amazing. They go, that had to have been God. Does that happen? (laughs) 
So I, if you can think of a time where you know that something that God moved and used you to the point that someone was able to praise God, um, or not, look, I'm looking at question number four. Another question, maybe this one's easier. Have you ever been the recipient of something that caused you to praise God instead of the person giving it? I know I have, and I think that's a good challenge for us too as believers, that we want to praise the person who's blessing us. But it's so much greater to praise God instead. And ultimately, um, when we all do something, we don't really want the credit, right? It's kind of embarrassing. We want people to praise God. And so if you've been in the position where you've received something, and you have praised God instead of that person. Does that make sense? So talk about that for a minute. Okay, go on. Peace about Boaz that he prays for her, I just think is really awesome. Um, just in, it's in verse 12 again. Maybe you should underline it or circle it or put lots of stars by it. Um, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I just love that he prayed for her. And I kind of even love that he didn't say awkwardly, um, do you mind if I just pray for you a little bit? Like, I know that's weird, but could I pray for you? Like how we might do? He just prays. And she probably doesn't even realize he's praying for her until after the fact, you know. He just prays. And it's not weird, right? It's not a long, crazy, like, drawn-out, awkward thing. He's not, like, turning, like, a pep talk into a prayer, which... I think sometimes we have a tendency to do when we're praying, like, I pray that you will be strong and that you will be brave and that you will, what all these things, and you will gain whatever. See, it's nothing about her. It's just praying that God would bless her. And I, I just, for me, I was like, I just want to do that more. Don't you? Like, what a blessing it was to her. And it probably wasn't even weird. Maybe she didn't even realize he was praying for her. But he certainly was. He was asking God to bless her. And that we could be doing that for people. And pointing people to God just in that really holy way of praying for them with them present. And not later. We all do really secret closet kind of prayers. But what if we just prayed for the people in need that we came across and prayed these little, even if it's a little, God bless them, honestly. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, I want to be like that. And I'd be like, looking at Bo, I'd be like, I could do that, right? Uh, can't you too? Like, we could do this. So, anyways, there's a question there, but I think we're going to just move on by it. But something for you to think about and maybe um, pray about this would be maybe an easier than you thought way to point people to God to take advantage of praying for them. Okay, let's go on though. Um, we're going to look at part three, is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. And that ended chapter two. Um, the end of chapter two, we just read it. Naomi's saying, um, it's in verse 20, just the end of verse 20. She says, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And we can't read Ruth without talking about what a kinsman redeemer is because it's awesome. Um, so chapter 3 and 4 are actually taking place at the end of the harvest season. So chapter 2, she's beginning the harvest season. This is at least a few months later. Now she's worked in Boaz's field this whole time. And now it's at the end of the season. 
Um, I, this story, I was thinking, it feels like a fireworks show to me. So you, I, I love fireworks shows. And when I was a kid, we would go down, I live near Chicago, and so we went into downtown Chicago on July 3rd for the big fireworks show every year. And we went early in the day, like at lunchtime, and brought our picnics to like stake out our place. And we met all my mom's friends, and we got our good spot in Grant Park to wait for the fireworks at night. And we actually practiced our response to the fireworks. Because <laughs> you you can only do so much for like eight hours while you're waiting for your kids. And so my mom's friends would have us practicing. Ooh, ah, ooh. <laughs> I was thinking that this story kind of has those moments for me. Like it keeps going like, ooh, that was a good one. Ooh, that was a good one. And I think this Kinsman Redeemer piece, the end of the story, this is like the grand finale. Like, this, these, this is what you came for. That if you don't know anything about Ruth, this, like, theological piece of a Kinsman Redeemer that comes out in the story, this is the grand finale. Um, so, there you go. Okay, so, what is a Kinsman Redeemer? A Kinsman Redeemer, he is... Um, Responsible for protecting the interests of needy members in the extended family. This is something God has set up and it um, is talked about in the older Old Testament. Um, in Deuteronomy 25.5, one thing a kinsman redeemer does is to provide an heir for a brother who had died. Another thing is from Leviticus 25, 25 there, to redeem land that a poor relative had sold outside the family. This is Ruth and Naomi's predicament. This is what's happened to them. They are in need of a kinsman redeemer. Um, They're in a bad situation that they can't get out of because they don't have any sons. So, um, So this piece of it would provide an heir. So what would happen is that... um, I feel like I should say it in terms of, like, my family. So if... um, so I have two brothers, and they're both married. But if my one brother, BJ, dies, his wife, Patty, if they don't have children, is left without an heir. So my other brother, Andy, then marries Patty, gives her a baby that carries the family name. So she has an heir. So the brother-in-law marries the sister-in-law to get a baby with the same family name. Okay, do you get that? So that's what she needs. She needs a family member to marry her, to give an heir, to carry on the family name. Okay, so that's why it's this really big deal. Like, wait a minute, Boaz, he is part of our family. Like, this is hope. Because remember, both brothers are dead. The brother-in-law can't come to Ruth's rescue because he died too. So that's they need the next kin to come in. The other thing is that it does... Later on in the story, there is land. And so there is land because there's no son. There's nobody to inherit the land. So that's the other reason is they need somebody to make a baby so and have a boy, hopefully, who's going to inherit this land, keep the land in the family. So that, that's their hope. That's how they get out of this bad situation. Um, so that's what's happening at the beginning of Chapter 3. And... We're going to read, um, Ruth is, like, offering herself, like, just making herself available, really, for marriage. And we're just going to read the beginning, because it's the most outrageous marriage proposal you've ever heard. So.
so you should just read it and maybe you'll try it. <laughs> it says, the beginning of chapter one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you've been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, he answered. I believe this. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, right, read into that what you want, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Read that as, will you marry me? Okay, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. So that is the marriage proposal. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually like this is normal. So (laughs) aren't we glad we don't live then? (laughs) You don't have to do that. But that, it was not ridiculous. That's how you do it. And so she makes herself available. And Boaz is happy to comply. Like, maybe he's taken an interest in her anyways. Um, all the commentators said that this is such a romantic story. I didn't really see romance. But maybe this is romance in this time. <laughs> but so he says, yes, I'm definitely interested and want to help you out. But the problem is, there actually is another guy who's closer kin, like a closer family member. He gets the right first. So the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he is doing business with the other guy and asking him, well, do you want Ruth in this land? And he says, no, not really. I don't want Ruth in the land. So Boaz is like, yay, lucky me. I get to have her. And he's willing. Um, So that happens in chapter 4, verse 9. We'll just read where he seals the deal. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 9 says, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. So that's that's it. They're married. He has been the kinsman redeemer. He has redeemed them from their destitution, really. Um, then just skip over to verse 13, and this is what happens as a result, um, because they have a baby. So Boaz took Ruth, and he became his, she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. It says, the Lord said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. <clears throat> now, they didn't, I mean, 
it's awesome, right? She had a baby, like it worked. This, they have been redeemed, but here, this is where it's cool because it wasn't just any baby, of course. Um, this, their family line is a very important family line that is continuing. Um, Verse 17 says, The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David. So Ruth is really King David's great-grandma. That's who came from this. So we went, um, well, actually, flip. you can see the whole line in Matthew chapter 1, flip fast. We're always running out of time. But this is just so amazing. Like Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. And if you start in verse 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? The prostitute in Jericho, the other foreigner who had no hope but was rescued. That's Boaz's mom. So, don't you think? Why was he maybe had a soft heart for the foreigner who was oppressed? That was his mom. So, Rahab has Boaz. Boaz has Obed, whose mother is Ruth. Obed's the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of King David. And then we know that's the line of Jesus. The ultimate kinsman redeemer comes from this line of kinsman redeemers. Um... So, boom. How's that for fireworks, right? (laughs) Bam, that's awesome. The Kinsman Redeemer is such a powerful thing. Whatever this idea is that God has written into history and how he works. Because we are just like this. We are the outsiders in God's kingdom. We're the foreigners and the sinful people that are, we're oppressed by sin, hopeless on our own, and our only hope is a kinsman redeemer, and that's Jesus. By him becoming a baby, a human, son of man, he is now our kin and can redeem us. And that we are brought back into the family line and are given the inheritance of the kingdom of God. If it weren't for Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, we would be left alone, hopeless, like Ruth and Naomi were without their kinsman redeemer. Um, back in Ruth, um, I'll read it in case you're not there. Um, if I can find it. Okay. So, um, the women say to Naomi, The Lord this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you. And that's exactly what he's done for us too. That he has not left us. He's renewed our lives and he's sustaining us, right? Is that your experience with God? That's what he wants to be. If you're not experiencing it, that's what you're supposed to be experiencing. And he wants to renew us. We call it born again. Naomi was renewed. Ruth was renewed. We are renewed. And we are sustained because of a kinsman redeemer who came in and bought us out and brought us into the family and saved us. Um, 
And it's just incredible, I think. And I hope that, like, just seeing the story, like, for me, it just goes like, this is what God is always doing. And I think he was setting it up so that when Jesus came, they all went like, oh, yeah, I recognize this. God's always been at work this way. Since the beginning of time, he's been rescuing us, so of course he would rescue us with Jesus now. And that this wasn't just some random act that God did with Jesus. This was... How he moves all the time. So I suspect most, if not everyone in here, goes like, and I hope you do, like, oh, God loves me so much. Like, that's what he's doing. Like, I hope that you're feeling that and that you're, God is making your heart sensitive to that. Because um, that, I think, is his heart for you. But let me ask you this. Who do you know who needs a kinsman redeemer? What about everybody else? I Boaz was familiar with God's redemption because of his mother, Rahab. She was rescued in a very similar way. We've been rescued. Will we keep it to ourselves, or will we share it like Boaz was quick to share with someone who needed it? Or will we, would we be quick to share too? Um, it's just in the last couple of minutes, I want you to think about that around your table. Um, who do you know who needs a kinsman redeemer? Who can you share this with? Who can you point to God to find the hope that we have found in Jesus? So I think around your table, maybe share one person, whoever pops in your head first. I know you probably have a long list. Just share one. And then um, we'll close by praying for those people that this wouldn't not be the end, just our stories, but that God's story would continue into the lives of people we know too. That we would see and be a kinsman redeemer for everybody. Um, So go ahead and share on your table, and then we'll pray, okay?